Tonight, we are in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. So if you open up your Bibles, I don't have any, was there any announcements you wanted me to pass on? Nothing? Okay. So yeah, we're in uh, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, and a a rich passage, um, and I'm calling it Signs of Life, Uh, the blended family of God, the merging of Bridge and Bethany. Right, So the signs of life we want to see is we're in this newly formed family. Okay, So I'm going to read the passage and then I'll pray and then we'll go from there. So 1 Peter 4 verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this text. Thank you for your word to give us exhortation, to give us light, to give us guidance, uh, the light we need in a dark world, the light to show the path forward, the way forward for us as individuals, but for your church. Lord, so as we uh, uh, open your word tonight, as we are in this stage of life uh, as a newly formed church, uh, God, that I, I pray that this passage would, cha- would challenge all of us, would challenge us as your gathered church to be the church that displays your life. Lord, that we would fulfill our role at this period of time, in this location, for your glory and your kingdom. That's what we want, God. We want that desperately. So Lord, we pray for your blessing now as we uh, walk through this and uh, just pray that this would be uh, something that, that continues to uh, transform our minds, renew our minds, and uh, just give us that exhortation we need to uh, be your people. So God, we thank you. We pray for your blessing now in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we're jumping, obviously, if four chapters into a letter, and you're not in first, uh, in first Peter right now, are you? You're in Philippians. So let's talk a little bit about this letter. Um, it's, it's Peter, the Apostle Peter, the, the spokesman for, for the, the disciples. He's the, the head, one of the heads of the church. And he's writing near, near at the end of his life. It's in the mid-60s. And he's writing to Christians who've been dispersed because of persecution. Uh, it's mainly, he's writing to the area up what we'd call Turkey today. So he's writing to a church under severe persecution because during this time we have Nero who's in charge. You guys know about Nero? Uh, just a psychotic ruler. It's interesting that in this, this letter he says to honor the emperor. Yeah, amazing that he would say that, you know, we have trouble when we have the opposite party in charge of the White House and we will grumble and complain. And, and yet here he's saying, hey, Nero's the guy in charge. We're supposed to honor him, Right? But this, this letter is written to Christians under severe persecution, and, and we, see them, we see him uh, just encouraging them in the midst of this fire going on, because I say that, because there was, Nero wanted to build. He wanted to build memorials to himself, very egotistical, very prideful, and 
it, it, tradition says, historians say that he started a fire in Rome that just torched the city, the capital city of the empire. And, and so he could have more room to start building memorials to himself. That's what he wanted to do. And uh, instead of having a revolt, what he did is he started spreading rumors that the Christians did it. And it began a severe persecution, terrible persecution. And scholars think that this is a, probably a couple years, this is written a couple years probably before Peter himself uh, was uh, persecuted there in Rome. And uh, it, it, the tradition says that he, he had to watch his wife be crucified. And then he himself was crucified, but he didn't feel himself worthy to die like his Savior. And so he was crucified upside down. So a letter to a church under severe trials, they're feeling the heat of persecution, and he's writing to encourage them. All right, so let me just show you. He's reminding, he reminds them in this letter, just going to read a few selected passages, of their, of their selection and salvation by God. In 1 Peter 1.3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They're in severe persecution. He says, you guys, we have a living hope. No matter what's going on around us, we have a living hope, and we know it's true because of the resurrection. He tells them that in the midst of, how, of, their, of their situation, they're to, to be a sanctified people. Despite all that's going on, that's what they're to be. Beloved, in, in chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You're in the fire, you're in the persecution, but live to the glory of God. So, so much so that they have nothing to hold against you and all they can say is, yeah, they're good people, but we're gonna persecute them anyways. But he also encouraged them in the midst of uh, the persecution to suffer like their Savior suffered. Though he was persecuted, yet he didn't fight back. He was a man on a mission. Uh, for instance, in uh, 2.21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So in this letter, he's just encouraging, he's exhorting these Christians to live lives in this, under this persecution to his, to the glory of God, to, to endure it because of, of who saved them and, and what awaits them in the future. So he's, he encouraged them to live sanctified lives, joyful and holy, doing good deeds. Don't be defeated by darkness. Dominate it with the light, the light of holiness, of good deeds, of a fervent love for each other. God is calling his scattered church through Peter, he's calling, to be his light in a dark world. One of my passages, chapter 2, is just some rich passages, but he says this in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. As you come to him, to a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And then he goes on to say, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. That's just, he's just encouraging them, be the light 
reach, despite the persecution, follow the Lord, trust him, see that you're here for his purposes. So when we drill down into our passage, we, we see Peter exhorting them not only to live for God because of, of his salvation and the inheritance that awaits, but now here in this passage, he gives them another motivation to live for him. Because of God's placement of his church during these last times. He's writing to a church that actually has a specific mission by God because of the times they live in. The last epoch or era of God's redemptive plan, God has placed his church to fulfill a role. And that is ours too. Right, We are during this time, we'll talk about this more, but he wants his church to bring light and life to a dead and dying world. That's our role, folks. That's what we're here for. So our challenge tonight, specifically for us, is that I'm going to call it the newly forming Bethany. You know, you went through a, a process two years ago, and that became a new Bethany. It did. But now you're getting a whole new group of faces coming in and personalities, and there's going to be a new Bethany that arises out of this over the next months and years. So our challenge tonight is we are a church that's looking at what God is doing, we're right in the process of change, is are we going to be a church that exhibits what I call true signs of life? And I think there's five in this passage that we should consider, all right? So as this newly blended family of God, again, I'm just playing around with that, but uh, are we going to be committed to displaying God's life in us? Okay, so first of all, in verse uh, 7, all right, for 7a, it says, the end of all things is at hand. And, and, and I call this a sign of life as being aware of God's redemptive plan. We need to be a church. We don't come to church because that's what you do. We come to church because we're in a battle, right? We're, we're here on purpose. God has called his church not just to be a safe haven and just hang out. Oh, this is going to be your little community, No, we are a people called to live for God's glory because this is the end of times. When Jesus showed up and when he died, died on the cross, rose again, is ascended, that that was the beginning of what's called the end times. We are in the end times. This is the last epoch. The only thing that remains is what? His return, right? The tribulation and his return. It, this, and when he comes back, he's not here to die for sins anymore. He's here to uh, bring justice, right? So we're in, the, we're in this peculiar time. This is the last year. When it says we are at the end of times, it's not talking about like there's a stopwatch and it's counting down. It, it's, it's the idea of uh, the word is telos, and it means the end. Uh, it's like something that's culminating. It's a plan that's come to culmination or fruition, all right? This is the last stage of God's redemptive history, Again, we see that in Acts 17.31. We see at the end of Paul's speech to the uh, Athenian philosophers, he he tells them, "Because, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given us assurance to all of us by raising him from the dead. He tells them, look, God's overlooked your times of ignorance, and you need to repent because judgment's coming. There, when he comes back, it's about judgment. So you need to repent now. 
Okay, that's, that's the urgency of what's going on. This, this era is called the, the church age. We call it the church age because it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. It was a mystery that Paul says is revealed now. When Jesus says, I will build my church, and Ephesians talks about how Gentiles are now being brought in. Romans, Romans talks about bro- branches, uh, not natural branches, being grafted into the tree. This is something new that God has revealed through Jesus, and we see it going on this New Testament era, the church age. And this is the last one. And it will end with the return of Christ. And then it says the end of all things is at hand. Okay, that word, the word we hear is it's it's imminent. It's imminent. It could happen any moment, right? It said we are supposed to live with this expectancy because all that is remaining to to be done has already been done. We, We know the gospel. Where are we, by the way, in relation to Israel? We're on the other side of the world. The gospel has gone all over. I'm talking about geography here in relation to Israel. I should have said that. Geographically, we are at the ends of the earth, are we not? Okay, and it's still going. The gospel is still going. It's going to places where it's been, and it's, you know, it, it, it got, it, the, the gospel seems to have left, but it's going back to places. It's going all over all the time. The, the, the return of Christ could happen at any moment. So we, this is what it means here. It's, it's imminent. It's the next thing in God's plan. Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. He's going to come. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Uh, Hebrews 10.25. Uh, Do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It could happen any minute. You know, and, and we get the encouragement from uh, 2 Peter 3, 9 through 11. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. So we're in a time of God's patience right now. Right? It might have been 2,000 years, but that's, thank God for his patience, so more can be brought into the family. He's not wishing that any should perish, but, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, this is the very end of this era, this specific time, will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We are to live with this expectancy. All right? So we need to be a church that understands our role. We have to be reminded of our mission. Again, I'll go to sports a lot. I played soccer for Biola back in the day, and then I coached there. And I always had to remind the girls when I was coaching, guys, don't forget what our goal is. It's not to connect 30 passes. It is to put that ball in that net. Let's do it. When I was a player, I would just go crazy. Guys, we've got to win. (laughs) And we have to remind the church, we're here on purpose. We are here as part of God's redemptive plan to be his mouthpiece to this world. So that's a sign of life. And, and we should be responding with a kind of life that has that eager expectancy. 
Titus 2, uh, 13, 11 through 14, is all about what God's grace provides. In verse 11, it says, the grace of God has appeared. It says in verse 11, bringing salvation, which we love. But it goes on to say, it also talks about sanctification. The work of God's grace is sanctifying us. But then the last part in verse 13, it says, and we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that eager waiting, that watchfulness, is a work of God's grace in our lives. So we must respond with this expectancy. Um, The early church was known for talking about the second coming a lot. How's that in our conversations? Right, the Bible closed, even so, Lord Jesus, what? Come quickly. Yeah, so a sign of life is we're, we're, we're hoping for and we talk about the return of Jesus Christ. Okay, so a church that understands God's plan That's a sign of life. We're vitally aware of the urgency to be intentional and driven to fulfill God's given mission to us. Here in the Conejo Valley, Thousand Oaks, and we just spread out from there, right? And how how far do we reach? Well, where do you live? I'm looking at the people who fulfill this mission. Amen? Amen. So another sign of life, going down in the second part of verse 7. It says, uh, because the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So I call this a a second sign of life, patient and persevering prayer. All right, so let me get to why I chose patient. Where it says uh, sober-minded or self-controlled and sober-minded, the idea there is is you're uh, uh, you're not swept away by your situation. Right? You understand that, that we're in a world that's under, uh, you know, uh, under the power of Satan and there's evil in this world and there's persecution against God's people. And to be self-controlled is you have an understanding about practical matters. You act sensibly. You're not freaking out. And sober-minded means to be, to be uh, so controlled of your, of your thinking and your reactions that you don't act impulsively. You don't, you're not reactionary. You have a stable mind, a patient. You're patient in the midst of all this. You have a settled, settled sense of what's going on, and you trust God. All right. So that's the first part. You're patient, but not impulsive or reactionary. And and we see this word, these words used in, for instance, in First Peter one thirteen. He says, "Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ." A sober-minded person is a mind prepared for action and a hope fully grounded on Christ. In 1 Peter 5.8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's an alert mind, aware. You're not naive to temptation and where it can come from. You're not naive about who you are and your weaknesses. So you, you guard against those. That's a sober-minded person. A a great uh, picture of this is when uh, Jesus healed the demoniac, Mark 5.15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, had the legion of demons, that's a lot, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. But here he was demon-possessed before, going berserk, demon-possessed, going crazy, that he could be contained. And then, and then when Jesus healed him, just a, a mind at rest, a settled mind. And that, that scared them. 
But that's, what this, that's the picture here, a mind that's, that's settled and sober-minded and self-controlled. But here's the deal. It's a church that recognizes the urgency of the hour, yet instead of, and I, I use the word freaking out because to me that's a mental image, instead of being just running everywhere and just, oh, as you're scared, it, it's, it's, instead of doing that, it's trusting and turning to God. But what, where do you turn to God in this passage? Is so that for the sake of your prayers. So you have prayers that, that go to God. God. Prayers that are grounded in who he is and not what your situation is. Uh, uh, prayers that, that know his character and know what he prompts, knows his power, and you turn to him. And, and it's not just to get something. It's for fellowship, right? Our prayers are so important because it's not just, God, help me. It's, God, I want to know you. To know him is to, it, what Jesus says, to know God is what? To have eternal life. We want to know God, so we got to turn. So in turning to God, seeking greater knowledge and relationship with him, well, a church, because of this, we want to be sober-minded and self-controlled. We prioritize prayer. And you're here tonight. You're going to hear a, a shorter message, hopefully. But then we're going to spend time in prayer in the back. <laughs> so we want to prioritize prayer, and then we want to be persevering in prayer. And again, this is a characteristic of the early church. Acts 1.14 this is before Pentecost happened. All these were with one accord, with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Acts two forty two. After this great sermon and mass three thousand people turning to Jesus, that very first sermon. What a sermon! It says this in Acts two forty two, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And the prayers. Prayer was a defining characteristic of the church from the very beginning. It's one of the key elements in the apostles' ministry. Acts 6-4, they had a problem in the, in the gathered church. We have people who are being, you know, they're, they're turning to the Lord, and, and some of them for sure were being kicked out of their homes. You have this community that's trying to take care of each other, and there arose a problem at the very beginning. People are people. And, and what happened is the widows who were not from Jerusalem or Israel, who were Hellenistic Jews, were being discriminated against. They weren't being taken care of like the, the widows who were more Jewish. They were all Jewish, but they were more culturally Jewish. So there's a discrimination in the early church, and so that arose. And so the apostle said, well, let's find some men, and these men will, you know, serve men of, of Hellenistic Jewish background. And so they chose these men, and they took care of them. But they said the reason why they didn't try to mediate this and figure it out, it says, because of Acts 6, 4, says this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the super apostles, what, was, what did they recognize their main purpose. It's two. What do you think? You heard it. Tell me. Prayer. prayer and ministry of the word, getting into the word, right? Again, I like interaction. This is a small enough group, so I'll do that to you more often. It's a major theme in Paul's encouragement to the churches. I won't go through all those, but constantly praying. I remember you all in all my prayers with joy, praying for you. We just see that constantly. And again, it's a key element. We all want to wear the armor of God, right? For spiritual warfare, well, what is the thing that cl closes it all up and ties it all up? Prayer, Ephesians six eighteen, Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication prayers for the saints, for all the saints. 
and I can keep going on. But again, a vital, important sign of life, a praying church. A church that prioritizes prayer, not because Lance is, you know, so persistent and I want to honor Lance, but because we, we recognize it's, it's so key. We need to pray. Another sign of life, verse 9. Above all, verses, I'm sorry, 8 and 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 8. I left out verse 9. I'll stay here for right now. But first of all, it's pretty evident, right? It's an earnest, fervent love that he calls for from the church. Earnest, that that idea is uh, pertaining to an unceasing activity, normally involving a degree of intensity and or perseverance. So the love he's talking about is not love that is a feeling. It's an activity. So he's calling for an earnest love. Again, you know, what is, how do we know what kind of love God has for us? John three sixteen. you all know the passage. For God so loved the world that he gave. Real love acts, does. We need to have a love that is practical. It's an energetic, a sign of life for the church. The key sign is energetic and practical love. And Jesus says it's a sign of a true disciple in a group of disciples, Right? In John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, that's a pretty high standard. I'm supposed to lay my life down for y'all. Are you for me? Yes, you are too. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, it's not talking about feeling. What is it talking about? Say it. Action. Okay? So it's a practical love. It's a fervent love. I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 that we, you know, we read at all the weddings and that we don't apply very well in our marriages, right? We learn to do that over time. But 1 Corinthians 13 says that love is superior to anything you can do in the church. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. No preaching jokes, please. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know. Even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide these three but the greatest of these is love. 
fervent love, energetic love, practical love. Whew, that's a high standard, isn't it? Now start thinking about how have I shown love in practical ways, not just to my spouse or my children, but to the church, right? And again, I, I, I don't know most of you. I'm just getting to know you. And so there's no one here I'm pointing at. I'm kind of pointing at all of us, right? So that's, that's the sign. If we want to read, we can read 1 John 4, 7 through 21, but it's, it's clear. And, and he goes on to say we need to have an earnest forgiving love, right? It says in verse 9, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love does what? Covers a multitude of sins, So we need to have an earnest, forgiving love, a a love that's quick to overlook minor offenses. And and here he's he's quoting Proverbs 10, 12. But here's the deal. This kind of love is the opposite of human nature, isn't it? Right? We want to get back. You do something to me, I'm going to get you. want revenge. How many of you ever felt like that? Everyone raise your hand. (laughs) We're human beings, Lance. (laughs) You know, there's a quote that says, there's, there's a button in a tourist shop. To err is human, to forgive is out of the question. Sometimes we live that way, don't we? Rather, this kind of covering over, this forgiving love is to overlook an offense, to absorb the offense, take the hit, and then mimic God's own action towards us in Christ. Right? Romans 5.8. Think about this. But God shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. Uh, that's, that's the kind of love and, and forgiveness we want to show. And then he goes on to say in, in verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is another aspect of love. This earnest love is a serving love. Hospitality, right? That generosity, that desire to give. It's an openness to others. When I say openness, because the idea of hospitality is you open what? Your home. Literally. You open your home to let people in. All right, think about that. What do you have to get comfortable with? People, when you let people in, come on. The mess. You're real. Oh, my goodness. That's terrible. You're a real person. But that's what it is, is you open your home. You say, you know, I'm just, I would love to help you. I'd love to help you. Come on in. Yeah, there's a mess. I'll try to clean up. But too many people leave their doors closed and don't, open their homes, and and what you do when you open your home, you're actually saying, I want you to know me, and I'm okay with that. That's hard, isn't it? Because we all all want to, because we all, we have pride, and we want to have a facade up. We want to, we don't know if we can trust people. It's risky, isn't it? And think about then. Back then, under severe persecution, they might be letting in what? A spy. There's serious persecution going on. So it's even there, it's an intense thing. To, to show hospitality was to show fervent love. Matter of fact, I mean, to be an elder, you had to show hospitality according to 1 Timothy 3. But here's the deal. Hebrews 13 says this, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Maybe there's blessing coming your way for doing that. But it's, it's, an, it's an overflow of, of, of showing, of, of an openness. I want to be a blessing to others because I love them. Opening your home, opening up your resources to be a blessing to others. Again, we, we, we have to think about their context. 
Christians back then to travel and to go into another city like some of the, the apostles had to do, well, they had to have a place to stay and Christians would open their homes. But think about this. Again, I go back to Acts. What do you think happened after that first sermon? We know that many became Christians, right? They, they became Christians a quarter mile from where they had just crucified six weeks ago, earlier Jesus Christ. And they got, became Christians by being baptized in the mikvahs right around the Temple Mount in the name of singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this crucified guy, they're proclaiming publicly to be his followers. What do you think happened to many who were living, who were from Jerusalem or the surrounding areas? What do you think happened to them? Persecuted Persecuted for sure, but when the first signs, and this has happened to friends of mine here, they were kicked out of the home. Friend who was a Christian scientist, young guy living at home, became a Christian, had to find a new place to live. There, do you think that happened? Now, do you think hospitality was something that needed to be asked for? Absolutely. Okay, all that being said is that this is a, we'll extend a little bit, talking about a practical love. There's needs. We see needs and we want to help out. We want to fulfill these these needs. So a sign of life in a church is a church that wants to help, that has a love that overflows, a a love that is seen in the welcomes we give, for sure, but in how we love each other over the long haul in meeting needs, all right? So another sign of life in verses uh, 10 and 11, the first part of verse 11, let me read it to you again. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, so here, another sign of life that I say is a church that's vitally living and reaching, uh, doing what God has called it to do is joyful, consistent, persistent, everybody all hands in, service. We're all in. We're all in, in the church, everyone serving in however way they can. All right, so let's look at this. First of all, it says, as each has received a gift. So right away that assumes something, you have received a gift. He says it, Right? Now, there's a little debate about whether this means you've been received a gift. We had a long discussion on our Wednesday morning Bible study. I'm reading a book thanks to Lance, <laughs> and I say that with all joy. But is it, is it talking about what the gift, the ability we're given, or is it the opportunity in the church that you need to go fill, it's, you're responsible to fulfill? Is it an opportunity that you can step in and God can use you? Or is it a gift, an ability, a spiritual ability you've been given to fulfill whatever role God has you to do, right? So and here's what I'm gonna do about it in this passage for now. I don't think it matters in this sense because his point is get to doing it. Get to doing it. If you're not serving in the church some way, somehow, you're not being faithful, I, I, I am doing this now because when I was just out of college, uh, there was a, a church I was going to, the youth group needed somebody to help corral the junior hires. 
Just, to, just someone who's just to go to their game, you know, go to their stuff and just be the ones who didn't let them beat each other up. I was just like an adult sponsor. I was only 21. <laughs> Not much of an adult. And then, and pretty soon, the youth pastor said, yeah, I need someone to do announcements. Said, All right, I'll do announcements. I flubbed it up a few times, and then I got comfortable. And, oh, and then there was a, they, this, one of the small groups needed an assistant, so I helped out. And then the guy was going to leave, and I had to t- he asked me to take over. And, I did the, and then after a while, he says, you know what? I need a summer intern. You want to do it? I was 22. I'm like, sure, I'll do that. Why not? I'll give it a summer. And by the end of the summer, I was convinced. I want to go into youth ministry. And I was going off to seminary. And then in, after seminary, I started serving in the church. And, and I just God just kind of kept opening. But how did I? I didn't know I had any. I didn't know what my gifts were. I'm still not quite sure what they are. But I know what God has called me to do. Right? Because here's the deal. If I knew what my gifts are and that I were to do them, who, would, who might get the glory or take the glory? Maybe me. But that's not the whole point of this. I think he's, he said, you know what, there's needs in the church. Just start stepping into them. Maybe, maybe that's where you want to stay. Or maybe you do it for a while and do something else. Or maybe you get hooked and that's something you have to do to be a blessing to the body. As each has received a gift, use it. Why? To serve one another. Get to serving as good stewards, and that stewardship is a picture, it's a picture, it's our responsibility. We have been, res- we are responsible, when we're a part of a church, we are responsible to be a part of the church because the church needs you and you need the church. That's the way God designed it. Before I got married, I was a wreck. Got married to Renee, awesome. Much better. I'm a better man for it. To me, that's a great picture. Of when you look at Genesis chapter two, why did God provide Eve to Adam because it wasn't it was not good that he was alone he was incomplete to me that's a good picture of the church is that he's provided all of us to make the church complete we're going to be more complete you know starting next week I mean not starting you know what I mean by that but where it's a newly formed church with new completeness because we have new people more people being brought to this and we can do more isn't that cool and it's going to change. I mean, I have one person sitting down, she says, yeah, I'm a little bit sad. It won't be like this anymore. Because we had a, our closing uh, service was, we didn't really have a service, kind of a Thanksgiving service, but we ate. So we had our whole area filled with tables and we did a shorter service and then we ate together and then we had some singing at the end and it was really fun. She says, yeah, we won't have this. I said, yeah, we won't, but you know what? What we're going to have is better. What we decide it's going to be, the attitude we bring to it, the, the energy and, the, and the, the desire to serve, what we bring to it is what's going to determine it. And I'm not talking about the power of positive thing. I'm not talking about that. I mean, I'm sincerely, I'm saying God has brought us together, so let's go get it, right? Let's go get it. Stewards of his grace. Oh, this is stewards of his very grace. I just wanted to, I just had fun doing this. I thought of that. You know, I, I wanted to just, we all want God's grace. How many of you want God's grace, right? So when we think of God's grace, we think, oh, that's his, self, his grace is what saves us. We all know that, right? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? Yeah, okay. But you know, there's more to his grace. I like response, sorry. There's more to his grace. His grace sanctifies us. We see that in, in uh, Titus 2.12. I mentioned that. His grace, the grace of God has appeared not only to bring salvation, but it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So his grace sanctifies us. He also, our, his grace helps us to serve. 
We've been shaped by God to do. You all know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God that no one may boast. But verse 10 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He created us to do good works. That's what his grace does to us. Again, grace in this passage says we're, it, 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 it's, we are stewards of his grace. So we respond to his work in us in, in, in serving. And then also, too, this grace, his grace, his work in us, it helps us to wait expectantly. We already read that in Titus 2.13. So all that being said, a sign of life is an active, serving, eager-to-bless kind of church all contributing, all involved, all working to fulfill our purpose. Uh, Our our kids are in the military. Taylor's in Texas, and she's being trained to do a new, what she calls an MOS, method of service. I don't know. Is that right? I'm looking at a military friend. So she's being trained to do that because that's what she wants to do. That's the thing she gets excited about doing. And there's a need. You know, when, when there's a, you know, a little conflict going on and people get wounded, they need a flight medic to come in on the helicopter, get the person who's been badly injured, get them wrapped up just enough to sustain them and get them back to the hospital where they can be cared for. And that's a great picture of what the church is in. We're in warfare. We need everybody to find their MOS. And I'll say this, how about look for needs and go fill it, Right? That's Again, I, that's, that's how I tell people, get involved. Don't worry about the, the gift inventories and all that. Just get serving, right? And then finally, uh, the final sign of life is here at the end of verse 11. Why do we do all this serving? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And another sign, a vital sign of life, is a passion to please and glorify God. We're driven to please God. I love 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So let's do more good. So when we're at the, at the Bema seat to get our rewards from Christ, we had a lot of rewards. That's an okay ambition. But we are a church driven to please him. We're overwhelmed at our great and glorious God. And because of that, we want to honor and revere him. We have a reverential awe. We seek to praise, thank, glorify, magnify him as a church every day in our singing, in our serving, in our witnessing, we want to make God look great in our words, in our walk. Romans eleven thirty three through 36, I love Paul's reaction to all that he's unveiled in, in, the, in the first 11 chapters about the work of God. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might not be repaid? The answer is there's no one who can do this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
And this last sign of life is it's a church unmistakably marked, branded, characterized by reverence, love, and praise for our great God. Not just in how we sing, but in our serving and in our witnessing. Are we excited about our great God, the transcendent, mighty God, who's become a man because of his love for us? who's come near to us? Are you excited about him? Does it overflow? Do people know, right? So that's, that's what I pray for, that as we go forward, that more and more we would be, this is a great passage, one of my favorite passages, by the way, because boy, it hits so many topics. But to, to, to see this play out in, in the life of our newly formed Bethany, right? So I'm so excited, you guys, I can't tell you. Get pumped, Amen. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for uh, the faces I see here and, and older friends and now new friends. And uh, God, just thank you for the, the joy. Just get so excited to see what you're doing here. God, thank you. Thank you for your love for us and saving us and then giving, giving us the church, the body of Christ. Where we get to experience, we get to be used by you and we get to be blessed by you. We're saved into this amazing family. So God, we want this church to be your church more and more where we, we learn to put off unrighteousness and to pursue righteousness and we seek to love each other from the heart and with our hands. And Lord, we want, to, we want to see you glorified in how we love each other, but Lord, and also how we reach this community. So God, we love you and we thank you for what you've done, particularly in bringing our two churches together and the friendships that are forming. But God, may you be glorified. This is, we just, we praise you for this, God. In Jesus' name, amen.